This is the current federal tax development for the week of November the 1st, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to be talking this week about what we got late last week, which was a draft of the Build Back Better Act. So we're going to look at the draft provisions. Now, we're not going to look at everything in this act. This act, first thing is a lot of the act doesn't deal with tax matters, uh, and we're obviously not going to worry much about those. But even on the tax side, there's a lot of green energy programs and some other things, some foreign issues that I'm just not going to cover today. You know, I'm, I'm going through this generally in terms of the highlights for things that I expect I'm going to get the most questions about earliest in this. It's going to look at the individual provisions, uh, business provisions, and a little bit of the corporate provisions, although those are in many ways have been watered down dramatically, and they're mainly going to impact public companies at this point. Uh, with the surtax, with the tax, minimum tax, shall we say, on uh, book, what's going to be essentially financial statement earnings that are reported, as well as the uh, buyback, the 1% tax on stock buybacks for publicly traded companies. But again, I don't deal with a lot of publicly traded companies. The people that I talk to don't deal with a lot of them either. So we'll just kind of talk about that. Obviously, it has an impact on the economy. But right now, my concern is just the mechanics of what I need to do with my clients. So we're going to talk a bit about what we have there. We're going to talk about first what's not in the bill. We'll talk about the fact that this bill got reduced down a lot. I've been saying for weeks that there are a lot of things going to come out of this bill and be very, very careful about assuming anything was going to be in there. Uh, and taking some actions, especially in the estate planning arena. Turns out that was correct. The estate planning, the estate stuff's gone uh, in its entirety. There is virtually nothing in there. A couple of things will impact trusts, maybe not so nicely in some trusts, but we're still not going to be seeing the really bad stuff that I think a lot of people are getting worked up about, especially the issues dealing with grant or trust structures. So we'll talk about what's not gotten in the bill. Then we'll take a look at the individual provisions. Uh, what's going on there. The individual provisions both that are tax benefits and uh, revenue raisers. So we'll talk about both sides of those. And again, and also we'll talk about what's not in the bill because there's a lot of things not in the bill that people are getting very worked up over. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk to a little bit about the corporate provisions to take a look at that. Well, this week for quite a while looked like every other week. Uh, again, we started the week with the promise that we'd have a deal done by the end of the week. Uh, then it became pretty clear that things weren't moving fast enough. We had the objections as normal from Senator Cinema and Senators Manchin over various options. The president was working on a framework which was released on Thursday morning. Uh, the framework has some vaguely positive statements about it coming from the senators. Uh, but no commitment to vote for specific text in the bill. They were going to try to get a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill on Thursday, uh, but that also didn't happen. And what you're dealing with here very simply is that the progressives and the moderates don't trust each other. And as one member said, well, you know, I don't look, I'm not going to trust them and, you know, and they don't, I don't have any real reason to trust them on this issue. They have no real reason to trust me. 
So I think there's a strong push that this bill and the bipartisan bill will go together. I, I doubt we're going to get votes until there is a pretty, pretty solid position uh, that it's good that the big bill will be backed before they'll be able to get the votes to get the uh, infrastructure bill through the House. So just aware the two are linked. And as I've noted before, there's only a couple of tax provisions in the infrastructure bill. There are a lot more in this bill. So let's take a look at what we got this week. On Thursday afternoon, the House Rules Committee published a tech published a draft text of HR 5376, the Build Back Better Act. So we have a title, now official title of the Build Back Better Act. Don't try don't try to say that quickly multiple times. It get gets your tongue twisted quickly. Uh, it did come out on the 28th of October. Now they revised the framework to come into line. They revised the bill to come to line with the framework. So what we have now is a much chopped down version. The initial bill the House had drafted was looking at a $3.5 trillion spending package over 10 years and raising over $2 plus trillion in revenue. Now, obviously, when we're reducing the size of the package down rather dramatically, uh, it certainly appears that it will be nothing. It will not be over $2 trillion in total spending and may very well be down as low as $1.5 trillion. You don't need as much money. Because you don't need as much money, you can take some things out. A lot of the stuff that went out, I've been talking about this for quite a while because we had this long list of things that were in the original bill, tax issues, and people are getting really worked up over some of them. And some people are actually taking action on some of them, which was like, wait, guys, hold it. We knew the size is coming down. We knew they're going to pull things out. Of the 782 pages that were cut from the original bill, 530 of those pages came from the ways and means portion of the original bill. Now, that was per an article that's on a November 1st publication date, although Tax Notes always puts the Monday stuff up on Saturday. That was written by Doug Sword that went back and found out, you know, how many pages did we lose in the ways and means stuff. It's not insubstantial but it's way down over what we had before. And a lot of pieces just got pulled out of the bill in their entirety. So there was a whole big section on retirement plans. It's just not there anymore, right? We've lost a lot of things out of the bill because you just didn't need all those things in there. We don't need them. So let's take a look at some of the things that did not make it into the final bill. And generally, these are I can't say they're ever completely safe. They won't be back in the bill because things can reappear. There are various things happen. It is possible that even though the things, especially the first couple we're going to talk about, uh, have a strong level, or at least, well, the first two I'm going to talk about here, the first thing I'm going to talk about here, definitely Senator Cinema is very clear she will not vote for a bill that has that in it. So it would seem highly unlikely that could be in the bill unless somehow you convinced uh, Senator Cinema that voting for this was better than something else that they want that she might now want to get out of the bill. So it's always possible because Senator Manchin was not as anti on the first one, but it's still going to be very, very difficult. These appear to be tough sells. Uh, certainly, uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema have objected to uh, many of the things in this list. And that's somewhat important because, as I said, we know the size of the package is going down. So it's not so much that, you know, what, what was passed the House had essentially the wish list items 
uh, for those that were in the Progressive Caucus, at least up to the $3.5 trillion amount. I believe that was cut down from one of their original plans. Uh, but nevertheless, in essence, it was obvious from the beginning that that $3.5 trillion was the most they could get, and they weren't going to really get it. So it was pretty clear that a lot of their stuff had to come out. So the question is going to be what comes out of the bill. Well, a couple of big things that came out. First, the higher rates are gone for individuals and corporations. Rates are not going to 39.6. We're not going to be getting the progressive rates for corporations with the higher rates at the top end. Those rates are gone. The higher capital gain rates are gone. Uh, all of that is out of the bill. There is of my, there is a vestige of the capital gain proposal. We'll talk about the 1202 changes, but that's really the only piece I've found that's even hanging around in any way, shape, or form. So essentially, all the higher rates were gone. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a tax, but the tax we'll discuss, which is the surtax on higher income individuals, starts at a much higher rate. So while I would have had a number of clients impacted by the higher top marginal rates, uh, I'm not going to have any I know of uh, that are going to be impacted by the surtax because the surtax got jumped substantially higher than it had been. Uh, it basically doubled. So essentially, you know, we're not going to see that many cases. At the lower level, I had a couple of clients that might get close in good years, but it's like, but at the levels are out now, no, they're, they're not going to get close uh, to what we're looking at there. So we have that. There was also a discussion of limiting the 199 cap A deduction, capping it at $500,000 or something of that sort. Uh, that also is not in the final bill. So again, as I said, the key is here, things are not going to make it. Something surprisingly not, not in the final bill because I thought politically it was working, but I could understand there's some people that would be very, very, very interested in this not making the final bill and they may have some nice checkbooks in their hands. I'm not going to suggest that checkbooks, uh, you know, take care of things, but I think in this case they probably do. Uh, most of the anti-rollover as business startup and supersized IRA provisions are out of the bill. Now, those were largely driven by the story that came out earlier this year about Peter Thiel's Roth IRA. That, you know, he, he put some money in a very early startup. His Roth IRA bought the stock for dirt cheap. Uh, it turns out it turned out really, really well. So his Roth IRA grew to an insane level, and a lot of people were upset about that. So we had rules that were going to go in play that were going to make it very, very difficult to have a privately held company that you owned more than 10% interest in, or if you were an officer, it couldn't be in your IRA. We were going to require massive required minimum distributions from your IRA uh, if the value got in excess of $10 million between all of your IRA accounts. Uh, we were going to have some severe restrictions, as I said, on any operation you're involved in. We would clarify that you know, that the owner of the IRA account is a, is a person, you know, is basically a person that is going to be a primitive transaction issue if there's a transaction with them. That one would pretty much have just codified what we'd already seen in court, but, you know, bottom line, it was there. Those basically all gone. The only thing left are some anti-disc and fisc 
uh, provisions. There have been some court cases where taxpayers were able and figured out, you know, and decided to take the risk of putting a domestic international sales corporation or a foreign sales corporation. Uh, we've went through those variants uh, until we got to 19 cap A. But those variants to allow them to basically supercharge the IRA because the way those work, you essentially could run just things through them. They're uh, pretty much what you want. They really didn't do anything, and that was the design. And the court said, well, you know, con Congress, in fact, one of the funniest cases came down that literally said Congress can write absurd laws, and the fact it's absurd doesn't, you know, doesn't change the fact that it still works under the code. So remember, we've been through this whole bit about the law governs, right? Whatever the law says, if it's unambiguous governs. Well, Congress was going to now get unambiguous and get those out of the IRAs. That is still in this. So if you were in one of those cases where your client put a domestic international sales corporation or a foreign sales corporation inside an IRA, uh, you really want to take a look at that part of the bill here uh, to see what's going to happen. I'm not saying this is going to be, and I should say at this point, I'm certainly not saying this will become law. Uh, there is a very good chance that it would either be radically different or I think even better chance than radically different is simply nothing gets passed. And that perfectly is possible. But I have a feeling that if we are going to get a law, this is the closest thing I have seen since this whole year started about this you know, this super bill uh, that appears to be something that has a reasonable chance it could get the votes to go through. So for that reason, I'm paying a bit of attention to it right now. Uh, still say check the final bill before we get it, but it's there. Other things did not make it in the final bill uh, on the estate tax. Remember, we were going to accelerate the end of the doubled exemption, the doubled unified credit. For the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that would have ended the end of this year. That is out of the bill. So that will continue through the end of 2025, just as previously scheduled in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So hopefully your clients, you know, didn't go gift everything away to get the $11 million out of their estate uh, and then discover that, oh, well, by the way, I didn't have to give it away. And clients don't like giving that stuff away. So, yeah, preferably they didn't do it. Uh, they also got rid of the grantor trust rules and what I call here the anti-intentionally defective grantor trust provisions that were in there. They were going to change the rules to effectively try to eliminate the use of grantor trust as estate planning tools. The intentionally defective grantor trust where the assets are treated as owned by the taxpayer for income tax purposes, but it is completed gift and out of the estate for transfer tax purposes. The proposal would have had grantor trusts established, any grantor trust established after the end of this year would have been included in the grantor's estate at death. And secondly, uh, they also would have included on pre-existing grantor trusts if you put anything more into it after the end of this year. So it would have definitely shut that down, could have complicated a number of life insurance trusts too, because many of them were set up as essentially defective grantor trust just in case the insurance company demutualized or did something like that. So we could have it work. Uh, various things kind of, you know, got us in that. Demutualization becomes an issue because you can end up with stock in the insurance company. And if that gets sold inside the trust, you know, the trust sells that stock or they get the dividends. Then you have this thing in here that could be a taxable entity. So that's why sometimes you see that done as a grant, as a potentially defective grant or trust structure. See it then.
We also got rid of a proposal that was in here uh, to require employers to offer every employee the ability to defer to retirement plan. And in fact, it would have automatically been an opt-out option. So if you had a 401k, it would be automatic enrollment. If it was, if not, you would have to have automatic enrollment in funds going to an IRA for the employee. Again, it would be an opt-out provision, but you know most people don't. So the idea was it would increase retirement. That is not seen in this bill, but keep an eye on that. The Secure 2 Act is doing is go, is planning to do a heavy push if that gets picked back up. And again, that one is sponsored by both Representative Neal, who chairs Ways and Means now, and Representative Brady, the prior chair and now ranking member uh, for the Republicans on the committee. And though those two ran the Secure Act through as a joint project, my guess is at some point they're going to run the Secure Act through as a joint project. And that bill definitely had the proposal to require 401k plans to have automatic enrollment. So we'll see. I could see them expand that to this IRA provision as well uh, to just force it because they're getting concerned about people not having Social Security or Social Security, you know, depending, actually not having, depending entirely on Social Security for the retirement and how that may not work. Other things, couple of things that got all kinds of press and Twitter went crazy over them. And it became pretty clear to me early on they were not getting anywhere. First thing, the billionaire's tax is not in the bill. That would have required those with a net worth of over a billion dollars or average taxable income for the prior three years of over $100 million to do a mark-to-market on some or all of their assets. That would still have been up in the air a little bit. Uh, every year instead of paid tax. Everybody probably heard about, you know, Elon Musk is Elon Musk's huge tax that he would pay under that provision in the first year as a catch-up. Uh, basically, even it came out, the funny part was the bill text came out like on Tuesday, but within 24 hours, it was pretty clear it was going nowhere. Uh, Joe Manchin did not indicate he was in indicate essentially he was not in favor of it. I don't know he actually said no way he'd vote for it, but it seemed very likely he wouldn't. Uh, and others seem to be backing off it a well as well. So within 24 hours, the um, you know Senator Wyden, who had drafted the bill, you know was trying to tell people it still was you know it wasn't totally dead yet. Which as soon as you're defending a bill is not totally dead yet, that means it's probably dead. And that was kind of what happened. So it did. Also, the big issue about information reporting by banks. Remember that cash, the transactions in the bank that could not be traced to something that the IRS would get a report on. And again, we never really got the language for how the banks would have known that, uh, what the, what the, would have been reported. But the theory of that, that reporting that would go to the IRS, it started out at a $600 trigger level. Uh, it eventually went up to $10,000 annual trigger level. Uh, and it didn't make the bill. It, it's out of there. In fact, I don't know it ever got in the bill, to be honest. I think the Ways and, Midi, the Ways and Means Committee draft that went into the original $3.5 trillion package never had it. The chair of Ways and Means kept saying he needed to see language before he'd even tell you if he thought it was a good idea because you know I think he had concerns about how it would work. And I have a feeling getting the language together, regardless of the political heat, the language was going to be very, very difficult to pull off. And so I think it just got dropped at that point. So there we go. We got that together. So let's talk about what did come into this bill. So let's look at the real issue. There is a section and three provisions 
that is labeled the higher taxes on individuals. And this is for high-income individuals as a test. At a bottom line, I think I'd look at this bill th this way roughly right now. Um, if, if your individual taxpayer client, if they have, let's say, AGI or taxable income between $100,000 and $350,000, there's probably not going to be a lot in this bill that's going to affect them either way directly. We can talk about the indirect effects on the economy and all that stuff, and you can have that argument with the economists all you want. I do find it funny that this is the first bill in a while somebody hasn't put jobs on. Uh, so, you know, it's like I it probably get stuck there, right? The Build Back Better and Get Jobs Act, because every act is a jobs act regardless of what it's going to do. Okay, they just that seems to be the, the way you tell a tax bill. It says jobs. Uh, but in any event, that, that wasn't meant this time. So let's talk. So basically, there are a few cases. First, they would broaden the reach of the net investment income tax. Uh, and what they're going to try to do is get some of that income that escapes both the investment income tax and self-employment tax and get that picked up. And, you know, things like flow through S-Corp income. So they would make a change. Now, this only affects you, though, if your taxable income or your modified, let's see, it affects you if your modified adjusted gross income is in excess of $400,000 and there's various levels, 500000 for Mary Joint. You know, there are different levels, but in that range, and it begins to phase in over $100,000 is a range for the phase in except for married separate where phase in over fifty. So essentially, you would pay this tax and it would start phasing in the extra. And there, there would be essentially two ways of computing investment income. And once you got above the you know, your threshold amount plus $100,000. Sounds like the 199 cap because they borrowed some of this concept from there. Uh, once you got above that 100000 above the threshold amount, you'd be paying your tax on the secondary one that's broader is the investment income. I shouldn't say be paying the tax. It's still possible you're paying tax on AGI, which wouldn't change anything here. But if you really were getting somewhere by like excluding S-Corp uh, pass-through income from the NII and you have... AGI above a half million or so, yeah, you, you might see something here. So I'll keep that in mind. Uh, they will make permanent the excess business loss rule. Uh, that's not surprising. It was going to be around to the end of 26 now anyway. Now it's just permanent. But the bigger thing was they made a change to the loss carryover rule. Previously, the loss carryover rule said that any loss disallowed from having excess business losses on the individual return would be treated as a net operating loss in the following year. Now, it was never clear if that NOL would be subject to the limitation of business deductions or not. Um, and if, if it was, how that worked with the 80% limit of taxable income for NOL carryovers under the TCJA. Well, what this bill is going to do is just totally ignore, is totally throw out the NOL concept at all. Any disallowed loss will be treated as a business loss in the following year. So for purposes of this Chapter 1, the regular income tax, it will be considered a loss in the following year. In that following year, you would, again, still have to worry about running it through the net, the total business loss limitation in the following year. But you won't worry about the 80% of taxable income limitation, at least unless it runs through, generates NOL then, and then the next year the 80% of taxable income limitation would apply to it. Got all that? 
So yeah, it, it, it's a little different as to how that works, and it runs a little different. Other changes. This is the big one that gets a lot of talk, but again, I don't know how many clients you're going to have that run into this. I'm sure some of you may have them, but I also expect that for most, uh, I, I think it's going to be very rare that there's going to be a CPA where this makes up a huge proportion of their clients, at least the ones that we're going to be talking, the ones we're talking about here, talking to here today. Us, you know, those of us in this group, I'm, I'm sure there are CPAs for the super wealthy, super famous, and yes, they'll have a lot of these, but otherwise you don't. The bigger problem in this is going to probably be with trust because those you could run into easier. There is a surtax on modified adjusted gross income. Modified adjusted gross income is the taxpayers, if for individuals, the the income, and then the well, only adjustment you're going to make is take adjusted gross income and then modify it by subtracting from that investment interest expense that was not that was allowable on the return, but not allowed in computing AGI. So it's going to, the ones that would be on Schedule A. So you're going to get that investment interest. So they're going to give you that. If your modified adjusted gross income is in excess of $10 million, uh, $5 million if you're married filing separate, $200,000 if you're a trust or estate, you will pay 5% of the excess modified adjusted gross income. Not 5% of a taxable income number. So we don't care about those charitable contributions. We don't care about any of that stuff. In fact, the law provides that this surtax is not a tax for tax credit purposes. So if you have a non-refundable tax credit, uh, you can wipe out the regular income tax, but you can't touch this. And it also will not count in determining if you're subject to the alternative minimum tax. So again, this tax would be on top of the AMT you're going to pay. So it's a surtax. And the surtax goes up one more time. If you have Income in excess of $25 million, 12-5 married separate, $500,000 for trust or estate. We're going to have an additional 3% tax, so essentially going to 8% at the levels above those levels of income. So that becomes a much more expensive proposition. Now, for trust and estates, it's $200,000 and $500,000, and that is for gross income under 67E, uh, AGI. So it would not include the income distribution deductions which is important to understand, or, nor should it include charitable contributions from Schedule A because neither one of those, well, I may, but we'll have to see if they factor in, but I don't know that they do. I think they're considered different here. Um, but 67E is the AGI limitation. So we'd see how that goes on this one. But it could get expensive. Now, there are some exceptions. If a trust has only charitable interest left in it, it's not subject to this. But, of course, that means something like a charitable remainder unit trust that had this level of income would be subject to this or modified adjusted gross income. So, you know, we'd still be looking at trusts. They need to be wholly charitable trust in order to be exempt from this provision. So, you know, keep keep your eye on that. Yeah, I think trust is the one place you'll find it. Otherwise, less likely to be an issue for most of our clients. There are few changes with worthless Securities and partnership interest. First thing is, we're going to make a change, which I guess I can figure out maybe why you do this, but for whatever reason. Um, a worthless security currently under the law is deemed worthless on the end of the tax year when it became worthless. They're now going to say it becomes worthless on the date 
that you have the specific event that establishes the worthlessness of the security. So essentially the data becomes worthless. And it has to be an identifiable event. I suspect one of the keys here is you're going to have to have an you have to uh, really have an identifiable event. You've got to point out what exactly is the evidence that this stock became worthless on this date. That's going to be more of an issue just to get to there. So that's a change. May not be a huge thing in many cases. You know, it's clear in any event previously, if it hadn't been worthless by the end of the prior year, but was worthless by the end of the current year, uh, you could claim it. Now you may have to do a little more work to find a specific event that you're going to say proves it became worthless. We also now have a couple of things, and we're kind of working here. What we're trying to work on here is to get out of ordinary losses by doing planning for abandonment. So first thing they do is they redefine and add partnership debt as a security. Uh, essentially, securities are, you know, we're talking about securities, worthless securities, you don't get to abandon them and take an ordinary loss. That's considered under 165G to be a capital loss. Uh, in addition, they added a provision in 165G that said abandonment of a security or a partnership interest is considered the identifiable event that proves worthlessness. So that means if you try to abandon a security, immediately it's just going to be a capital loss because that abandonment is going to convert to capital loss. It'll be considered to be a worthless security. Worthless securities are capital losses. They're treated as a loss from the sale or exchange of a capital asset. Obviously, it's going to be a loss, so they'll have it. And finally, they had a brand new section to 165 that essentially says, if you have a worthless partnership interest, and remember, the minute you abandon it, it's deemed worthless, that'll be considered a sale or exchange. That's going to repeal the old revenue ruling that allowed us to abandon a partnership interest if we had no debt allocated to the partner and get ordinary loss treatment. That will be eliminated by this bill if it becomes law, at least as written. So those are all key changes we have here in worthlessness of a security. That obviously could affect your clients below the 300, below the 400,000 level. Uh, but again, my clients don't usually abandon a lot of these things. And the clients that have abandoned have had their AGIs above that level. So I'm not going to say it can affect, but it actually absolutely can because anybody could abandon an interest. Uh, but the partnership abandonment, just be aware that that technique is going away. It's in fact, I think it's gone. That may have been one that has a weird effective date. Uh, this one is the one vestige. Remember, we had all those things on September 13th that capital gains were going to a higher rate and you couldn't. You know, sorry, if you hadn't sold the stuff by now and realized the gains, you're going to pay the higher rate. Well, that's gone from the bill, but that date stayed in one place related to capital gains, and that's here on the 1202 gains on the sale of qualified small business stock. Right? Remember, under 1202, uh, since 2010, if you acquired qualified small business stock and you held it for five years and then you sold it, you could exclude up to $10 million of gains from your income. Well, we're going to change things a bit here. Under this rule now, if you have taxable income more than $400,000, there's been a zero there, if we could slide, you can only use 50% 
exclusion of the 1202 gain. You go back to the pre-2009 version, you know, the George W. Bush version of this credit, what existed, or what, this exclusion, what existed when George W. Bush left office, which was a 50% exclusion that also had an AMT quirky element in it. So you got the 50% exclusion, not the 75 or 100% exclusion, and not the AMT exemption. So you're kind of, you can't use those two special rules. That's here with 1202. Also, the 1202 gain exclusion is not available at all to a trust or a state. So those are two relatively, you know, if you were planning on those, that could be a really big change in what's happened. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, digital assets, which is broadly defined, but would include all the stuff you think it would, uh, are subject to constructive sale rules. So that would include cryptocurrency or anything cryptographically. With cryptographic digital proof, those are going to generally be considered to be subject to constructive sale rules. Now, if they're not publicly traded, you're going to get an exemption there, but that's involved. Interestingly enough, everything I heard about the wash sale rules initially was that, well, they're going to add cryptocurrency to wash sales. It's a little more than that is what they did. Um, what they decided to do was massively just take current and 1091, throw it, throw away entirely, and rewrote a brand new provision with detailed lists of related parties that if they acquire the stock, you're going to have the wash sale take place anyway. We have uh, other other things in there, you know, that kind of wrapped in some court case decisions uh, in there, in addition to moving the digital assets in. So now we have specified assets, not securities. We have it. It's roughly, it basically works roughly the same way. But some court cases and other things now have been wrapped directly into the code. So, for instance, like I say, there is a detailed list now of who is a related party that if they reacquire the security, you've got to do the wash sales. And yes, retirement accounts made their way in there. Just to make that very, very clear. So all of those things make their way in. So that, that one was, as I went through the law, that one was like, wow, they're just rewriting the whole thing. You know, I was expecting, I, had, I knew it was in there. I had heard about it before. I'd kind of seen it in passing, but I hadn't spent a lot of time reading the for the bill before because, as I said, it's a whole bunch of that's not there anymore. No need to read it. Uh, but now it's like, yes, this is a massive rewrite of the wash sale rules. Uh, the changes aren't as significant as I worried it's going to figure out as a massive rewrite, but there's still a number in there. Child tax credit. There's going to be some 2021 modifications that take effect this year. They did add provisions that you lose the credit entirely uh, if you have fraud or intentional disregard of the rules. And there's some mechanical ways you automatically have intentional disregard of the rules. Fake kids um, do that. You know, th those are the issues to get it lost entirely. And Because the problem is there was concern that people could have gotten the money and then hide behind the limited protection of not having to pay it back. So... They, they figured you could game the system, so they've come back and done that. They also clarified, let's say that last year your clients filed a joint return, so they got a payment this year. Now, let's say this year they split up, the two are gone. Each will be deemed to get one half of the payment. So if they filed married separate this year, each gets one half. I don't care who actually got it. They don't care. The law does not care. Each spouse will be deemed to get half regardless of who actually got the money. Uh, 
So be aware of that. I know we're going to have divorce situations and other issues where you're going to have real issues with clients who are whining because of that, but just kind of be aware of that. That's still out there. Okay. Uh, we did clean up a bit, and I think they just mainly put the law to say what the IRS has been doing, how the IRS should calculate the annual advance calculation. Can they use information that they have, you know, they obtain from other sources? There's various things there that clean that up a bit. And they also provided a, a special rule here because of the privacy rules that apply to income tax information. There was a potential problem that if you had a joint return situation, you know, in the prior year, you're going to be non-joint this year, and, you know, that the one spouse might not be able to find out information about what had happened to the payment with the other spouse or how much it was. They end up going into the bank account of the other spouse. So this directly allows the IRS to release all necessary information. If they'd filed a joint return, all necessary information can be issued to either spouse. We don't have to get the permission of one spouse to release to the other on this child tax credit situation here. Also for 2022, it's extended to 2022, the enhanced version. Uh, the advance payment will now be for the full year, not for half a year. Remember, we got in halfway this year, so only paid for half and not paid for full. So it'll still roughly be the same payment they've been getting, would be the theory. Now, there is an interesting provision here that if, if on the base return they're using for calculating, you're in the phase-out range or above the thresholds, they generally won't pay the advance payment. And the theory being that that's going to make it, you know, that, that eliminates the problem of a lot of people having to repay some if their income goes up slightly. So they, they do have that in the range this year. There are special rules, though, where they don't worry if you had a lower income. Uh, let's say in 20, they're using the 20 numbers initially. Now you get your 21 return filed. You're in the phase-out range. There are provisions to deal with that, so they're not going back and trying to grab that money back from you uh, that you got early in the year. They also allow you to elect to use the preceding year phase-out range, a preceding year's income for the phase-out. So in that case, I just said, let's say 2021. 2020, you had income that was, or 2021, your income was, so you qualified for the full credit. In 22, your income goes up. You could elect to use 21 to qualify for the credit. That's allowed under these provisions. Okay. Some other changes, earned income tax credit. They really just carried the ARPA changes in 2022 and gave you one more year. Now in 22, you'll be able to elect to use 21 or 22 to determine your earned income. That's something that's been around the last couple of years. They've done it. The premium tax credit expansion that applies in 21 and 22 has now been carried forward to 25. Now, this is not the rule that said you didn't have to pay back the excess advance. That was a one-time only deal for 2020. 21, 22, you have to pay back excess. But what happened was for 21 and 22, they, they said a couple of things. First, that it didn't matter if your income was above 400% of the poverty level you would be able to get a credit if the second lowest cost silver plan required more than 8.5% of your household income. You still qualify for a credit even though you were above the 400% of the poverty level side. I remember under the old rules, once you got to 400% of the poverty level, you just had, you know, your, your job was pay the insurance. I don't care. There is no subsidy. 
Uh, there is now a subsea. It'll be available all the way through 25. Obviously, they're gambling, and 25 is not an accident for a year. The gamble here is that, you know, if you need Republican votes to clear, if you need the votes of both parties to clear the 2025 tax, uh, extending the tax cuts, uh, this is going to be one of those things that will also need to go along if you need any Democrat votes to get it through, which generally you're going to need those votes um, unless you have control of the House, Senate, and the presidency. And even if you do, this is going to be a tough one to leave out if you're including the others. So, yeah, there, there's a reason why they carried this to 25. The idea is to make this quasi-permanent. There, there's little doubt that was the design and why we have that year. Of course, that's the reason why the TCJA phased those things out. You know, to pretend that there was not a cost equal to what it would be for every year, but just go with this. Other changes to premium tax credit, the employer affordability level moves to 8.5%. Also, very low-income people, individuals, can qualify to get their insurance from the exchange, even if they have an affordable offer. There is a provision in the law that protects an employer in that case. If your employee goes and gets it from the, uh, goes and gets, you know, basically a subsidy from the exchange, uh, and then you, you know, and it turns out that you offered it as affordable, an affordable offer, you won't need to pay for that guy that went to the exchange who otherwise couldn't have gotten there. Uh, they also, for purposes of the income, we're going to exclude lump sum Social Security payments. Lump sum Social Security payment is any payment in excess of one month. And any part of that that does not apply to the current year, because that happens a lot on disability, because it usually takes a couple of years to get the claim processed. So they're getting this big payment the first time they get on disability. We're going to essentially take that out, except for the months that actually were part of the year is the only parts that will be included in the calculation, not the entire payment for two years. So that'll be in there too. They're going to allow the premium tax credit to people regardless of how low their income is. Used to be when you got to the poverty level, you know, the theory was you're supposed to use Medicaid. Uh, that's out of the bill. So it would be allowed at lower levels. And the odd unemployment rule that said if you get unemployment for one day of the year, you're presumed to have a, a household income of no more than 138% of the poverty level. Well, we're going to extend that through 25, but we're going to change that 138% to 150%. So a bit higher percent, which would lower, your, which would lower the uh, credit somewhat unless you really were down below that level because it's going to be a cap. Uh, but it will be extended all the way through 2025. Again, not, you know, obviously same issue here. We're trying to tag that along as a permanent deal, just like all the things on the uh, TCJA that go away in 25 were also tagged on with that to make it a permanent deal. Uh, dependent income from a dependent under age 24 up to $3,500 would not be counted as household income. Uh, so your college student, whatever, we'd ignore their household income uh, if it's below $3,500 or up to $3,500 uh, in computing household income to figure out how much you have to pay uh, you know, or how much of a credit you get. So that's also a change here with this. Uh, interesting one, Pell Grants income taxations in here, and their Pell Grants will be treated beginning next year if this passes as a tax-exempt scholarship in all cases. and um, it will also have a conforming rule to treat them as a scholarship for the American Opportunity Tax Credit calculations. 
So same basic issue there. We're also going to repeal the rule that barred someone from getting the American Opportunity Tax Credit if they had a felony drug conviction in the past. So that was there. Now, there are other provisions that affect individuals. Again, I'm just I'm hitting the ones that I had time to do a deep dive on this weekend. Uh, I've still got more to look at. I don't guarantee my deep dive is perfect either. So be aware of that. I'm running through this, trying to figure out what I can. Actually, I have to talk about some tax updates this week. So I'm, you know, we're running along, watching it, and then going to try to watch what happens in Congress. Also, on the corporate side, again, for the most part, this is not going to affect your clients, your C-Corps, but in theory, it's there. There is a 15% minimum tax on financial statement income, modified version of it. It is mainly for those with higher incomes, higher net worth businesses uh, that are, and, and that are public companies. Again, we're trying to get, get rid of what Congress is trying to get rid of for years, this publicity about all the money that now it's Amazon is making and the fact they pay no income taxes. So we're going to have this as part of a corporate minimum tax. So we're going to return the corporate minimum tax. It's going to simply have this provision in it. As well, whoops, I went too far there. I need to go back one if you watch the slides. We're going to have a 1% tax on stock buybacks by public companies. So you know if they pay out $100 million to buy back stock, they would have to pay a million in tax on the buyback. Um, again, that's, you know, in theory, that, that's meant to equalize buybacks and dividends. Uh, there's a calculation somewhere that says that makes them equivalent tax-wise. Whatever. You've got it. Obviously, it's a 1% tax. So while there was a lot of complaints about stock buybacks, I would agree that that hardly looks like the level that's going to discourage them to a large extent. But it is there, and it's what's going on. As I said, don't bet on this bill 100%. I think it has a better chance than we've had in weeks, you know, than we've had up to date of having things here that's basically what we're going to see or very close to what we're going to see. But this thing is not anywhere near at this point. I say this, and I'll probably agree to everything this evening. But it's nowhere near to being over the finish line at this point. And everything could still collapse. That's still a very real possibility. But now that we know what they've taken out, the stuff they've taken out theoretically could come back. But I think there's virtually no chance of it coming back. We just aren't in a position right now. If a bill's getting through, it's not getting through by putting these things back in. Uh, it's probably only going to get through by reducing. Right, right now we seem to have an agreement uh, that you know we, we, the progressives are okay with this bill. They may not love it, but they're okay with it. However, they're not okay if it drops again. And they are, as, as we said, they want to see commitments and they want to see the votes on this bill before they'll let the infrastructure bill through. They'll kill the infrastructure bill in the House, is what they've effectively said. Uh, if it comes up for a vote, unless this is cleared. So well, we'll see how it goes. We'll see what goes on, but at least keep your eye on this. And hopefully your clients didn't go out and establish a bunch of estate planning uh, things they didn't want to do, but they were scared that the, all these changes were coming. As I told people at that time, if you're willing to pay the legal fees, uh, you know, I would go gone ahead and drafted things, but I certainly wouldn't have funded them. And this is the specific reason why I wouldn't have funded them yet until we have time to ask the client, okay, looks like that's not happening. Do you still want to do this? 
Or are you now going to say, no, I don't want it. If I don't need to do it right now, I don't want to transfer all that stuff in. These conversations you can have at the moment. And again, I wouldn't really act on any of this stuff we have right now, but I could feel a bit better talking to clients about these sort of things that may happen. And I think the one that could conceivably be an issue is that 1202 stock issue. That I could see collecting people who had relied upon that. And again, income above $400,000, I know that that's the rule. But when you sell a company, Quite often, you know, if you if it worked, it went way better than that. That's why it was a $10 million limit. So I have a feeling we, we may be seeing these people having trouble and now getting the 50% and all the issues we had on the pre-2009 Section 1202, which was the one nobody ever used as a practical matter because it just wasn't as helpful. Yeah, well, we thought we had 100%, and now it looks like we might not. So keep your eyes on it. Otherwise, uh, welcome to this week. You know, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, thanks for coming in this week. I, again, will be uh, taking a look next week, probably at updates, unless we really, really, really get the law. And then look at what changed from what we had here. Uh, you know, those things are coming. Uh, but I'll also be online. I'll be online at uh, the New Jersey Society of CPAs, their Connect site. The Connect site for Arizona, Minnesota, uh, and uh, Illinois, Washington. Those are the ones I'm members in. So I have that for those sites. Uh, I'll also be uh, doing a bit of work th this week. I have a couple of presentations. Uh, actually, I have presentations of some sort every day this week. So I'll be doing things in a lot of places. Uh, doing short webinars, Monday, Tuesday. Uh, doing a couple of uh, session for a a what's going to be basically a chapter of the Virginia Society on Wednesday and then doing a session for a firm on Thursday and Friday. We're going to divide the standard one day session into two short days uh, because we're doing it remotely. So that makes it work easier. So I'm staying in town all week and it looks like I may be staying in town the rest of the year except for a trip to Tucson later this month. That's as far as I get, but out of the state appears to be not happening soon. So we'll, we'll see. I'm getting there. We'll go. But in any event, thank you for tuning in this week. We'll come back next week and talk to you about current federal tax developments.